Welcome to another episode of the Jam Pack Report today for January the 18th of 2021. Of course, my name is Samuel Adams and this is a daily gaming news podcast meant to bring you the hottest news you need to know from around the industry. Hosted on YouTube and podcast services around the world five days a week, it's your one-stop shop for everything you need to know. So if you enjoy the show and you like what you see, hit that subscribe button and keep coming back for more. But today we're covering the biggest news from the weekend, and there was a good bit to cover. But first and foremost, let's dive into some comments from Brad Sams at the BWW Media Group, who hints that more acquisitions are on the way in the gaming space. In a new video on Sam's channel, he shares that he knows of three specific acquisition targets for various companies going on right now. However, perhaps most interestingly, Sam's also shares that these acquisitions are not necessarily from the usual suspects. While Microsoft is openly searching for new acquisition opportunities, as shared by Phil Spencer in 2020, Google and Amazon appear to also be taking an aggressive tactic to help pad their cloud-powered Stadia and Luna platform catalogs, respectively. Sam's also notes that while not as large a part of the conversation, Sony is involved in potential opportunities as well. There is also the subtle mention of Facebook, a team who is working to create a one-stop gaming entertainment and experience hub through Facebook Gaming. Uh, now, if you do want to see the entire video that Sam's shared, it is up on his YouTube channel right now. You can subscribe to him over there. Personally, I love Brad Sam's. He does some fantastic work, and I follow him specifically for Microsoft coverage, but I'm always pleased when something else pops up. Uh, but this is very significant because acquisitions are becoming a very, very large large part of how platforms get exclusives. And up until now, that acquisition space has been dominated by the biggest names specifically in gaming. Of course, last year we saw the announcement of the ZeniMax acquisition from Microsoft, and that's reaching its conclusion here in a couple of months. But on top of that, Sony has also purchased studios before. You see a lot of exclusivity deals going on over there as well, and on the Xbox team, which we'll talk about more here in a moment. Uh, but ultimately, Amazon and Google are here for the long haul, it seems. Google is continuing to make more and more sense with their approach to Stadia, because during CES, we saw the announcement that LG televisions were going to get Stadia baked into them natively, which essentially puts Stadia in the homes of millions of potential TV owners here over the course of the next few years, as more people upgrade to 4K displays, and as people explore what these can do, Stadia is going to potentially take the place of an Xbox or a PlayStation pretty easily, and Luna is going to be trying to attempt the same thing. But Microsoft should not be written off from the cloud discussion yet. Of course, Xbox cloud streaming is something that is currently in its still kind of beta form in the Xbox app, but on top of that, there have also been discussions about a streaming stick uh, coming to the Xbox ecosystem that essentially connects to the cloud and just allows a $30 stick to plug into a television and give a version of the Xbox experience without that overhead cost of an Xbox Series S or X. Very exciting time. Times. But I think the most important takeaway from this is that you have to have exclusives if you do want to succeed and prove the value over the competition. The accessibility and the uh, ease of access that you have with these streaming capabilities is second to none, especially when there is a solid connection involved. 
but ultimately people are still going to stay in their current way unless there is some kind of incentive for them to jump and for them to get on board with cloud streaming and for that to happen a pretty big game is going to have to come along in a way it's almost like what happened with xbox and halo people loved the original xbox because of course microsoft was making it but on top of that it had halo and that's the only place you can play halo and you still see that playing into their plans today with halo infinite uh, being the big game that it is for 2021 uh, but very exciting to see what happens here acquisitions concern me because of exclusivity i don't like being locked out of certain platforms or certain experiences because of the platform that i am on uh, but ultimately, I suppose that is the name of the game for 2021. As again, we see with the Xbox and Bethesda deal going down right now. Uh, but moving on, I did want to share that there is some cyberpunk news that was shared over the weekend from Jason Schreier at Bloomberg. A new report from Bloomberg pulls back the curtain on the development of Cyberpunk 2077 at CD Projekt Red. Not only does the report restate that development of the game did not fully begin until 2016, but it also shares that many staff did not believe that the game itself would be ready until 2022. Schreier also shares statements made by current and ex-studio staff in regards to the 2018 demo. According to Bloomberg sources, the demo itself was almost entirely fake. As development continued and the project's deadline came closer, many of the elements shown in the demo were cut from the final product, such as car ambushes. Now, of course, you can see more about this report if you do want to subscribe to Bloomberg. It is behind a paywall, as many normally are. Uh, but ultimately, this garnered so much attention that Adam Badowski of CD Projekt Red actually responded. And I wanted to read his response in full. So, a few quotes from the article are pulled here. Fans and journalists were wowed by Cyberpunk 2077's ambition and scale. What they didn't know was that the demo was almost entirely fake. Adam's response? It's hard for a trade show game demo not to be a test version or vertical slice two years before the game ships, but that does not mean it's fake. Compare the demo with the game. Look at the dum-dum scene or the car chase or the many other things. What the people reading your article may not know is the games are not made in a linear fashion and start looking like a final product only a few months before launch. If you look at that demo now, it's different, yes, but that's what the work in progress watermark is for. Our final game looks and plays way better than what that demo ever was. As for missing features, that's part of the creation process. Features come and go as we see if they work or not. Also, car ambushes exist in the final game almost verbatim as to what we showed in the demo. And if we get a bit more granular about our release, the vision we presented in this demo evolved into something that got multiple 9 out of 10s and 10 out of 10s on PC from many renowned gaming outlets in the world. As for the old gen consoles, yes that is another case, but we've opened up to that and are working super hard to eliminate bugs on PC too, we know that's not a perfect version either, and we are proud of Cyberpunk 2077 as a game and artistic vision, that's all, uh, excuse me, this all is not what I'd call disastrous. Another quote, most of the staff knew and openly said it would not be ready for release in 2020. He says, you've talked with 20 people, some being ex-employees, only one of whom is not anonymous. I wouldn't call that most of the over 500 staff openly said what you claim. And finally, quote, a few non-Polish staffers shared stories about co-workers using Polish in front of them, which violated company rules, made them feel ostracized, they said, were their co-workers talking shit about them. Everyone here speaks English during meetings. Every company-wide email and announcement is in English. All that is mandatory. Rule of thumb is to switch to English when there is a person not speaking a given language in a casual conversation. 
It is, however, pretty normal for German-speaking German, Poles-speaking Polish, Spaniard-speaking Spanish, etc. There are 44 nationalities at the studio, you get the point. When there is no one else around, we are working in a multicultural environment. If the question is if it's hard to move to another country, sometimes culture and work and live there, then our answer is yes. But that's universal to every company all over the world, and we are doing what we can to ease that transition. Uh, Now again, I do encourage you to go back and read the entire article if you would like, because it does pull back the curtain on the development of Cyberpunk 2077. And while I might not agree with everything that Jason Schreier writes, I do really love his pieces. I think he's a fantastic journalist, uh, and I think that he's doing some fantastic work, uh, both now at Bloomberg and when he was at Kotaku. Uh, But it is interesting to see these reports shared from current and ex-studio staff, Uh, but I do want to point out a lot of what Adam retorts with is absolutely accurate, because you do have demos that clearly are not representative of final gameplay. We see that time and time again, and that's not exclusive to Cyberpunk 2077, uh, because while the game itself did launch in a very broken state, especially on last-gen hardware, it still is just a game that, again, was never going to be as good as those initial trailers really made it out to be. Now, I think that it could improve in a lot of different ways, uh, but still, I think that expectations were set very, very high from the community, and that potentially set it up for a bit of a downfall over time. Uh, Now, with that being said, there is still work to be done. Adam and the team are still working very diligently to make the dream of Cyberpunk 2077 a reality. Uh, But Schreier's article does go very in-depth into what is going on behind the scenes. Of course, you can see it here, and then the paywall does pop up. Uh, But, man, what what coverage that is right there. What a story, really, because who would have thought back in... October of last year or September of last year that Cyberpunk 2077 would still be talked about in January of 2021, but not for how good it was or how fantastic the newest free DLC is, uh, but for the fact that, nope, the game itself was actually pretty broken at launch. Now, moving on to the next topic of today's show, I wanted to talk about a New York Times article that was released over the weekend that criticizes rising gaming rates during the pandemic. A New York Times article that ran on January 16th drew heat in the gaming community. The Times' Matt Richtel shared the story of a Colorado family realizing that their son has shifted to spending the majority of his roughly 40 hours of spare time throughout the week on social media and Facebook. The article begins with a strong quote, The day after New Year's, John Reichert of Boulder, Colorado had a heated argument with his 14-year-old son, James, saying, quote, I failed you as a father, he told the boy despairingly. The article goes on to share different perspectives from families across the country with varying positivity around how their children were handling the pandemic and doling out their time. However, the true nature of the story comes through in its conclusion. Now, it makes me feel badly when I try to restrict him. It's his only socialization, end quote. This is a very interesting article, and I know that it got a lot of heat in the gaming community on Twitter, uh, but I wanted to point out that there are some very good points made here in this article by Matt Richtel, uh, because ultimately, there is a potential threat from kids spending too much time on social media and too much time in the video game world. Uh, It is important to get outside, do some activities. Uh, But I also wanted to point out 
that gaming has allowed kids, an entire generation of children really, uh, to stay connected during a time in which there is social isolation, during a time when school is a hit or a miss sometimes, uh, during these strange fluctuations in schedules. It's very important to have kids uh, socialize and learn how to work with one another and learn how to communicate. And I say this not even talking about those that are two, three, and four just learning how to, to talk, walk, and socialize. I'm talking about 14, 15, 16. Those are still very important developmental times where you're learning social structures, where you're learning how to uh, build together. You're learning teamwork. Uh, and gaming allows that in a space that is not uh, restricted to a physical format. And I think that's amazing. And on top of that, uh, a lot of the parents in these articles asked, if my kid wasn't on video games or an iPad or on social media, what would they be doing? Doing a puzzle? Learning how to knit? What would the outcome ultimately be? And that got me thinking. The benefit of gaming and the benefit of the iPads and the technology that we have is that even while they might not always be learning, there is a heightened potential for learning on these platforms if they are used appropriately. Now, scrolling TikTok for 12 to 15 hours a day, not a healthy habit. Not a healthy habit at all. But if you download a news app, if you download a, a Wikipedia app and you just start looking up things, if you go on Twitter and you see the conversation and you see the discourse, uh, if you search around and look at the newest news on Google, whatever it might be, you can find a lot of information that benefits the mind and that gets you thinking. And I think that's a big benefit. Now, restrictions should be in place, and parents ultimately have the responsibility to monitor their kids' screen time. And I think that is a conversation that has been had in the gaming industry over the course of the past few years. Uh, but ultimately, gaming does good. Gaming is a benefit for families around the world because it allows their children to socialize. It allows for that human connection in a time whenever that's an increasingly difficult uh, feat to achieve. And so I think that this New York Times article is absolutely worth reading and one that is worth uh, considering and, and contemplating. Uh, but Matt Rickle did a fantastic job, and I think that uh, he got a lot of heat on Twitter from people that read the headline, read the first paragraph, and didn't dig deeper to see him painting the story of both sides of the argument. Uh, absolutely worth looking at if you do have some time later this week. Now, to round out today's show, we have a look at the exclusives coming to Xbox in 2021, thanks to the Xbox Wire. Now, I'm not going to read all the way through this entire article because there are plenty of games that are worth diving into. But Xbox has shared a laundry list of exclusives coming to the Xbox family of consoles, of course, including the Xbox One, the X, and the S, in a new post on the Xbox Wire. Featuring 30 titles, the list includes many significant releases such as the Yakuza Remastered Collection, Yakuza 6, The Song of Life, Halo Infinite, and Psychonauts 2, while also shining a light on the indies coming to Xbox, such as The Gunk, Song of Iron, and 12 Minutes. Now, it is worth noting, only four of these titles have definitive release dates or release timeframes, and that's me even counting things like Halo Infinite. And so I bring that up because while a lot of these say 2021 as their definitive release timeframes, we all know that's not going to happen. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, uh, but many of these games are likely to get pushed back to 2022. Uh, now, I will also mention here that perhaps Xbox already picked the most 
assured releases for 2021 the most concrete releases uh, maybe they reached out to devs and said that these are the games coming out in 2021 this list could have been 55 but ultimately we shaved 25 off to allow those developers time to work on their projects uh, but ultimately i would work through this list and find games you want to track because there are plenty of good exclusives coming to xbox and i like this article i like the fact that xbox is pointing this out because as I said during our streaming conversation earlier, exclusives matter. They do. They're what bring people into an ecosystem, uh, whether it be an exclusive feature, whether it be an exclusive way to present games like we see with Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, or whether it be exclusives, th exclusives themselves, excuse me, just games that you can't play anywhere else. Uh, they do matter, and Xbox is absolutely uh, taking a stronger approach going into the next generation. Of course, through acquisitions, as we discussed earlier, uh, but on top of that, here with these smaller indies and these big kind of double A titles like Scorn uh, and the Gunk uh, that are certainly bringing a lot of eyes to the Xbox platform. So I personally can't wait to dive in here. And if I had to pick three games from this list that I'm excited about, uh, absolutely, of course, Halo Infinite is number one. But on top of that, I would say that 12 Minutes is very, very interesting. It has a star-studded cast. Uh, and then on top of that, I would say that I'm looking forward to Scorn as well. A very, very atmospheric horror game. Uh, but of course, I'm also looking forward to The Medium, which is coming out in a couple of days, and Psychonauts 2, among many other games. And of course, I can play many of these, if not all of them, uh, through Xbox Game Pass Ultimate fantastic bang for your buck with that one. But that rounds out today's episode of the Jam Pack Report. If you enjoyed today's show, drop me a like down below and let me know what stories caught your eye on today's program and how you feel about exclusives. What do you think about having a game exclusively on a platform or even having a studio purchase to make games exclusively for something like a Google Stadia or an Amazon Luna? Would love to hear your thoughts. But until tomorrow, you guys have a fantastic Monday. I'll talk to you soon and peace.